Hereafter After is the film that we're going to talk about, though. Yeah. I feel like it's weird that we've kind of relegated Clint Eastwood to the After Hours segment because there aren't really proper double features with Clint other than other Clint movies. Clint is just, you know, on his own shit. Yeah. Uh, so much that I feel like we can only discuss him uh, on his own terms, not even comparing him to other filmmakers. Although, to kind of subvert what you said, I've, I've, watching this and Ken Park kind of, like, feet kind of a little bit of a connection there as a double feature just in like i don't know clint's to- you know tendency towards humanism and larry's tendency very different in their approaches of course but uh i don't know let's just say that my feelings got going for both of these movies touched me in an emotional level <laughs> so hereafter uh intercuts three different stories uh you have matt damon as this retired uh psychic medium who is just tired of living a life full of death. And so he has exited the realm of the supernatural and the afterlife. And he works at the C&H Sugarcane Factory in San Francisco for minimum wage. Cecile de France plays Marie, a Parisian TV reporter who survives a tsunami. And upon returning, uh, she's held back from publishing both like a critique of post de Gaulle France liberalism and just like her reports of the afterlife both are like kind of suppressed at first she has to deal with that and then there's our our young boy my my boy Marcus young Chav our mm-hmm. young Chav our young Chad really he's gonna Ooh. grow up to be one I think that's I that's think an that's optimistic good call. read that's a good but, call. you know yeah uh, he loses his twin brother, which is really the only joy he had in life. It, he lived with a single mother who was constantly being threatened by child protective services to, you know, take the kids away. And, uh, you know, she's an addict and, uh, it's, it's very sad, but the, the bond that Clint forms between the boys is as precious as any youth bond. You know, you think about like, the three boys in 1517 as corny as that opening segment is it is really effective in building that bond the bond between the twin boys here is just beautiful and some of the most sentimental filmmaking from eastwood uh and then just the rest of the film carries (laughs) that tone of sentimentality and it, it really snuck up on me how beautiful this was and I'm not the first to compare it to M. Night, yeah. but I think both of them kind of have something there with their humanism and reckoning with like near-death experience and trauma and death itself and what comes after it and loss and like, you know, filtering them through just like either genre film or in this case, uh, just straight up. Well, I guess it is genre, but for the most part, genre, uh, drama. Yeah. And both of these filmmakers are melodrama filmmakers at their core you know uh so i i I think that that comparison is really useful for this one but uh yeah and much like i guess m night to kind of you know draw on that comparison like i feel like it is kind of just like small intimate details you know kind of like the weird blindfold sessions in the cooking class or whatever things like that that kind of really take things over the top in terms of like sentimentality and really make things like this work i mean uh, and this is also a very kind of uh it's a very sad movie. A lot of tragic things happen with it. And, uh, you know, for a movie that's dealing with, you know, such, you know, big ideas, it's really kind of about, you know, kind of these smaller moments of people just dealing with that and dealing with uh, 
what happens when we die. I feel like, you know, and we don't, we should, we shouldn't even speak to these people anymore, but it's, you know, kind of like the standard Clint hater, you know, he's a right winger could easily misread this film as a God is real film. Like, especially with, I guess the, um, the very complex French woman's subplot, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, dealing with the intricacies of French politics and and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, he's giving it up for the Cahiers group there. (laughs) Yeah. Cahiers du cinema was wetting their jeans. (laughs) So yeah, which is, yeah, that's a very, that's a very, uh, well, I mean, that just, that just goes to show, right. That, uh, Clint is smarter than his detractors. Like, uh, I think someone uh, on Twitter linked, like, him being a fan of uh, that Manuel D. Oliveira. Oliveira, yeah. And it's, you know, it's like most of the Clint haters are just watching Prestige Garbage. They don't even know who that fucking guy yeah. is. So it's like, yeah. So I, Clint's obviously working with something here. And I think, like, a lot of the, the spirituality stuff is never explicitly... Um, christian or anything like that i mean it even goes out of its way to say it's not in yeah. a way so it's i don't know it's something that's could easily get you know read as simple is much more complex yeah it's like that type of fantasy in its own right like i mean at like uh face value it's something i don't really like care for as much indulging that side but the way that clint handles it here with like it's not all just like mystical beauty there's a lot of like tragedy and pain Mm -hmm. involved in that and it is something where it's like not ever like i don't know it's not one of those like uh bullshit like christian movies like (laughs) heaven is for real or something like that where it's like everyone is sort of like engaged with this miracle a lot of the other characters responses are like dismissive and it's like it's a little I mean, I don't want to go, like, full, like, broke brain, like, Mark Fisher style, trying to read, like, because I think there is a lot of really interesting things about what this movie is saying, like, about, like, globalization and uh, capitalism and that effect, like, uh, particularly Damon's brother trying to, like, capitalize on this particular technique, just how concerned this movie is with, like, the intricacies of French politics at points. And I think in like, I'm still working through a lot of this, but in broad strokes, it's that type of like alienation. I think you lose a lot of the beauty and grace that like Eastwood is highlighting here. And I think all of these characters are sort of concerned with that, uh, that intimacy. Yeah, this is interesting because alienation is kind of a big theme that goes out through this movie and you know, you think of Clint's life, you know, he's lived a very uh, blessed life when it comes to social graces. I'm sure he's, uh, you know, he's he's hobnobbing with all the top celebrities playing golf. And so it's very interesting that he picks uh, this story that where a lot of, for a majority of the story, these characters feel really just kind of uh, dissatisfied with what the world has to offer and kind of like the answers that they're getting from it seem very base and doesn't really seem applicable to their specific situations and how that resolves, you know, them kind of feeling some relief from that is great. But even like kind of like those those the emphasis on like scenes where like uh, Damon is listening to that audiobook late at night. I'm presuming it's a Dickens audiobook. Yeah, it's yeah. the guy who he goes and sees the reading. Yeah. of. that's who he listens to every night, presumably. And, yeah, mm-hmm. and just how how much relief, you know, or even you know, the relief it, it is to hear that guy read out loud, but also kind of just how he processes his. Uh, pain through you know 
just in, engaging with that audiobook too i thought was just a, another one of those small touches that really really got me yeah i mean you could say a lot about the kind of miraculous scenes that happen in this mm-hmm. like the brother saving his other brother from the afterlife from a train bombing you know yeah. the film goes out of its way to show life as this such like such a bleak thing really like life is it seems futuristic almost like the color palette of this film very cool yeah the cool blue gray silver black color palette and when i say black man he really silhouettes the hell of out of matt damon on multiple occasions in this movie especially the first time where he's reading uh what's the guy richard Uh, kind yeah when he's giving a reading to richard kind of all people (laughs) oh god (laughs) and richard kind playing a greek guy is that's very great great one scene role also just before i forget Probably the best Jay Moore performance I've seen. As so a, funny that it's Jay because he still does some mugging too. Like Jay yeah. Moore gets to do a little bit of mugging uh, as the brother of Matt Damon. He wants to capitalize on his gift yeah. uh, or a curse, you know, of being connected with the afterlife. And yeah, I, I think it is really compelling because the the dichotomy of like bearing the weight of all of these souls versus making money uh, mm-hmm. is very like. I don't know. It's hard to navigate with like yeah. within the framework of this film because it's also three different stories and they all kind of have this as as you were saying, you, you don't want to go Mark Fisher mode on it, but you know, the systems have failed these people. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's like I think it's why I love this movie so much. It's like Eastwood can get into those intricacies where it all sort of seems like background work. Like it's not that apparent, but it's like in one way or another, all of these characters are leading like sort of alienated lives where those little grace notes that we see are like anti-capitalist in the way where they're not like necessarily like productive, Mm -hmm. like engaging with that. Like the afterlife is like frivolous and that's why a lot of people are not concerned with Mm -hmm. it. I I also really love uh, Damon's, arc in the beginning when he takes a cooking class from uh, oh. Steve Sharippa, Bobby Bacala from <laughs> The Sopranos, uh, where him and uh, Bryce, Dallas Bryce Dallas Howard have a flirtatious relationship that climaxes with a spiritual reading. And their their relationship is so wonderful. Yeah. Some of the greatest melodra- or like really romance and drama that Clint has pulled off that I've seen there's a shot uh, where, or there's a scene rather, where the the lesson involves a blindfold. Oh my god! And in both instances, it looks like the person is just waiting for the other one to kiss them with the blindfold on, and the tension is like so palpable, and it's also framed so well because it's like this spacious t- two shot where even you ha- you even have. Bobby Bacala peeping into the edge of the frame <laughs> once in a while as the romantic tension is simmering and it's so funny. Uh and yeah, it almost reminded me of downsizing because of Damon and this kind of like near future uh you know, anti-utopian future where it's just everything is super bleak and there are these little moments of human connection that kind of transcend all of it. Uh, even if, you know, the two movies obviously have very different agendas and outcomes. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, I could definitely see that. I think that's not a unapt comparison. And 
to speak back to that that whole sequence because you have the the cooking scene and then you get the scene where you know Dallas Howard and Damon you know have the psychic reading at his apartment to you know paired together and that's such a slowing down of the movie that I, I, I appreciate so much such a great formal choice and like this is like a good like 20 to 30 minutes right yeah. both of these scenes together and like the way these scenes you know since they're so long get to have these you know interesting peaks and valleys i think is great and you, yeah you're talking about the visual the visual uh of like the blindfolded um you know taste testing scene you know obviously the surging romantic qualities are very obvious but also just like kind of uh just good cinematography and like uh i guess world building for the lack of a better term yeah as you see steve sharippa like Mm -hmm. hovering around them it gives it a sense of i guess kind of like a environmental realism it really you know even though they still feel very isolated because of how strong that romance is it's almost a reminder that the outside world is still there it adds like to the tension too because it's like you you want them to kiss in that moment but like they can't just fucking make out in the middle of a cooking class yeah although maybe they should have maybe they should <laughs> then they would have gotten to yeah <laughs> no yeah and then ha- that that scene that you know happens after that you know damon very hesitant to show him you know his powers and it kind of uh basically ending their relationship and mm-hmm. I, it's so interesting and i think a, a great choice how like that's that's it like that's that relationship yeah is pretty much the core of it is like that you know 20 to 30 minute sequence and it really just i mean tells you all you need to know about damon's pain and why he doesn't want to be known as a international psychic i mean you know later on in the movie you see the other people who, who claim to be psychics and they they don't seem like the most savory folks yeah, yeah. exactly it's like clint still has that classic american like <laughs> denial of most like uh, psychic type stuff as you know just tricksters people yeah. trying to make a buck uh hucksters if you will Mm -hmm. but it's so sincere in its depiction of uh damon's gift and also there's one visual motif that i really love of damon looking down out the window (laughs) when he just takes up like half of the cinemascope frame and the person he's looking down on you know is out on the street and it it doubles that from the san francisco apartment to his hotel in London toward the end when all three stories merge and he's looking down at the boy who was trying to get a hold of him. Uh, Just really like very basic, essential filmmaking from Clint there, but it's so effective. I mean, yeah, it's, I I think watching Hereafter for some reason, because I don't know, I've watched plenty of Clint movies. Maybe this idea should have popped in my mind a little earlier, but it is like, the Clint's the the beauty to Clint's visual style. I mean, he does he does mess with like kind of like the deep blacks, dark shadows. This is something he does in Jay Edgar in his next movie for a whole different reason, emotionally. But uh, it, he just does have that classic Hollywood style. You know what I mean? Just that classic, like the, those window shots in particular, kind of reminded me of just kind of like just a firm, solid knowledge of just classic style, and just to see that applied in you know just intelligent but not um you know it, like look at me attention grabbing ways mm-hmm. it's just one of one of the reasons why i love clint so much yeah there's not too many like camera moves or anything that are too attention grabbing there's one after the death of the brothers actually two involved with uh the death of the young boy there's one insane like pull back from him dead on the street like a classic Almost like the classic Clint, like ending helicopter shot. Uh, I don't think, I think it's a crane shot, but it moves very quickly out Mm -hmm. from that. And then also 
uh, in on the urn full of ashes. As, as uh, Marcus is looking at the urn, you know, there, there's a very quick like push in on it. And I don't know, it just kind of establishes that relationship with him and his brother's afterlife form, uh, which doesn't exist in the urn. It exists in this other metaphysical realm, you know. Mm-hmm. Where do we go from here? <laughs> Uh, I think the uh, arc with Marie, the French journalist, is really interesting because it showcases like French media as basically as much of a bureaucratic maze as any institution that Clint's ever portrayed, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's funny, I guess he, he really is giving into his you know French critics that love him, and he's like, all right, I guess I'll show a French institution as mm-hmm. a series of bureaucracies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I really love it, and there's there's some really great imagery from behind the scenes in the control room uh, of all the different monitors while she's you know interviewing this uh, guy who runs a factory in I think an unnamed third world country and uses child labor, uh, per, you know, and she's just upset because she saw the afterlife when she was in a tsunami, so she can't challenge him or anything. And it's again, it's like little details like that where it's like the, the, there she's interviewing someone who's like exploiting uh, like third world labor. There's the little thread of like Damon being pushed out of a, like his his factory job that he's doing to buy time. It's just those little touches of like the globalizing world just making these characters lives different in like or difficult in a way that isn't that doesn't draw attention to itself much like the the classical filmmaking style (laughs) uh also the yeah when he gets let go when damon gets let go at the factory uh first we get this just incredible uh, shot of the factory the first time you see that CNH logo one of the great like establishing shots in this movie uh, the the beauty of this film really does sneak up on you in moments like that whether it's an establishing shot or a really dark interior shot of two of the characters you know uh, but then we get Damon going to his locker and the locker next to him has like a, a Shea uh, sticker on it and then there's another sticker next to it that looks like scratched off or something, but it looks like it says something about support workers or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's very funny that you just catch a glimpse of that before he's laid off uh, in the most like new way possible where it's like, well, we're giving you this offer where you're going to get paid, you know, for the next 12 months and uh, you're going to solve the health benefits for the next year and a half. And it's just like, you know, the underlying point being that you don't have a job anymore. (laughs) I think we've tackled with this question ourselves and maybe, you know, on pod a little bit like, you know, we don't want to call Clint Eastwood a leftist, right? Because that's just not the case. Of course not. That's just not the case. But I think he just has a better understanding of working class people and maybe more so just anti-authoritarian, anti-bureaucracy tendencies yeah, that, of course. that well, I mean, you know, we could politically enjoy even from like, the left. They're yeah. like certainly valid, like right wing people who like critique capitalism and like see yeah. it as wrong. Like, especially if you're like, like trad on a, so on a more social way, like how capitalism sort of erodes, like those traditional structures. Like, I don't know. It's Clint is just doing a lot of difficult, interesting yeah. things. He's thinking about it more so than a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of maybe like Hollywood blockbusters that get credit for being progressive because it has 
I don't know, some very vague anti-capitalist lip service or whatever. He's yeah, he's bon actually parasite. <laughs> 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 the blockbuster. I guess hey, it's a blockbuster in its own right. Hey, but... I'm just I'm just jerking around. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's just a much more thoughtful a filmmaker than those who critique him as i said before i i also enjoy the i guess montage kind of of the young boy trying to find his brother through different spiritual means you know he goes and sees a bunch of hokey uh psychics and uh he also looks up on youtube what happens when you die <laughs> <laughs> and you know clint makes sure to give us two different perspectives <laughs> gotta hear both sides i, I kind of like i mean this is probably already happening in 2010 but it's like kind of like showing the you can't life's biggest questions you can't search them on google yeah you that can't is ask, pretty funny yeah you can't ask siri about there's a that. really cynical reading of this that's like uh men women and children you know where yeah. it's like we are all connected and the world is messed up and computers i mean it's only it's it's but like this one isn't a, scene yeah, yeah. It's, no, it exactly. has nothing to do with i know <laughs> i'm just saying this is a cynical read I mean, people it's, are I mean, cynical toward Clint Eastwood. I'm just defending my boy. I'm, I've been learning about the enemy so that I can put my blockers up. It's, I mean, it's like you know, some some of the corniest sayings are true. I mean, is, you know what I mean? You can't find the meaning of life on Google. Sorry, haters. <laughs> you just can't. I'm pretty sure I could find it on RBG, uh, the meaning of life, the Monty Python movie. Yeah. For some reason, in my head right now, I thought the invention of lying was called the meaning of life. That would have been insane. Yeah. That would have been awesome, actually. <laughs> Ricky, go off, Rick. I forgot Louis C.K.'s in that movie. Like, I saw a still, and it's like Jennifer Gardner, Stephen, yeah. or Ricky Gervais, and Louis. It's such a weird, yeah, weird uh, mashup. It's 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 a rough movie. <laughs> I watched it like when i was sick one day and it just made me feel so much worse yeah uh and i was in high school too i didn't have any sort of critical eye toward it i was like oh there's comedians i like in this whatever i'll watch yeah. it oh my god and then i rewatched it like two years ago for just no reason and was even less taken with it somehow yeah maybe instead of uh lying maybe that writer's room should have told the truth to themselves that's you true I mean? that's very smart <laughs> wow <laughs> I didn't even actually think about that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even think about it. If I could uh, get on Rotten Tomatoes for that blurb, you know, as a, yeah. a rotten one, I think I'd that... love to get rotten. I, I'd love to get tomato certified for the pod. Yeah, let's let's do let's do it. Let's get it. <laughs> let's get it. Podcast first thing in the bio: tomato certified. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so all all three pads converge in England when Marie uh, finally gets her book through, just through a different publisher entirely, not news. They're just like, all right, we'll set you up with a fucking faith-based publisher or something. <laughs> uh, but she's asked to speak uh, at this literary convention and uh, Matt Damon also goes there because he just wants to get away from it all and learn about his boy, Charles Dickens. <laughs> and I love that. It's almost like a proto 1517 thing before he gets to the convention where he just goes to the Charles Dickens house. He just like <laughs> is hanging out, you know, knows all the answers that the tour guide prompts, <laughs> but doesn't show off. He just says it to himself. Yeah. I love I love that. I love the So that's my one of my favorite scenes in the movie. One of the genuine joys people could have through consuming art. Like I really like and to further that, yeah, that scene where he's listening to the audiobook guy Reed Dickens. I mean, I don't know, that's just such a touching scene as someone who likes art himself. Yeah, exactly. Uh it's it's very sincere in a way that I really appreciate because 
I don't know. There, there's something about Damon in that role for Eastwood that feels off and different than the usual Eastwood formula, but it really works. I, I'd be interested in revisiting Invictus. I know that nobody has claim, reclaimed it as anything mm-hmm. above like mids, yeah. and those are like the Clint heads giving it a three, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll watch it for the Damon factor. So he was watching some football, in yeah. the, you know, in his hotel. Well, that was rugby. Ah shit! Oh no, no, no! Oh, Invictus was rugby. Yeah, Matt Damon was watching football. Well, I guess I didn't. I thought Invictus was about soccer <laughs> for some reason. Now, so. Invictus is about rugby. He was watching football. He was watching football. He's in England. All right. You think England is <laughs> <laughs> like what's all this? Then we're watching football. <laughs> yeah, actually, I have a British fan, and he says that's how it goes on over there. So yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it's really like touching how it all converges. Because Marcus tracks down uh, Matt Damon while he's being like very taken with Marie's reading from her book. Mm-hmm. And he just pesters him into a reading finally. And we see that same lighting set up from when he read Richard Kind in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this hotel in England when Damon is reading Marcus. And it's it's a very powerful scene. And it's it's... It's quite sad. I got to say, it's quite a quite a tearjerker of a scene. Well, I think you're, you know, alluding to this earlier. It's, uh, you know, Eastwood's vision of the afterlife. You know, it's not all, it's no, it's not wine and roses. You know, so mm-hmm. to speak, it is. You know, he does get the the tough pill to swallow, Marcus. That you know, his brother says you're gonna have to figure it out without yeah. me. I take know, my fucking hat off. Take my yeah. fucking hat <laughs> off, you fucking copycat. God damn it! Stop copying. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, so yeah, he, you know, he gives him a little bit of that tough medicine, but, you know, knowing that it comes from the brother, you know, probably comforts the boy a little bit. And I don't know, I kind of like how, uh, you know, Eastwood kind of gives this boy his first life lesson, you know, kind of, you kind of have to learn to deal with the, the tough things that happen in life. Absolutely. And, uh... He the the young boy then plays wingman and sets him up with yeah. uh, the the hotel that Marie was staying at because he was like I can tell you like her uh, mm-hmm. very very funny no, cute interaction yeah yeah, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> no I still kind of do that if people ask me if I like someone like no no I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so he writes like this five page letter to her and leaves at her hotel when they meet at this cafe and it's, it's such a beautiful shot when she's approaching the cafe at first in the street. Uh, but then as she's walking up, Damon just kind of lets her just like walk around for a little bit, just like, uh, just lets her wander around and just looks at her and takes in her beauty and like what he was waiting for, for so long to find someone with that kind of connection and the fact that, you know, she responded so, you know, positively as to come after this long confessional letter he wrote, he then imagines them, you know, embracing each other and kissing. And then they actually meet, you know, a, a few seconds later, he shakes her hand and they don't have that, you know, classic flash to an afterlife connection that Damon has had with pretty much anyone that he makes skin to skin contact with. Instead, they just have like a normal person handshake. And I don't know particularly what it means, but it is just a beautiful gesture. 
And instead of that classic, like, Clint helicopter out from some crazy exterior, it's just, like, this really clean crane out from this French cafe that you would not expect a Clint Eastwood melodrama <laughs> uh, to, to end up at. But it's it's really beautiful. Uh, Neil Bahadur on Letterboxd uh, compared the ending to Chaplin. And I don't know why, but it makes perfect sense. Like just thinking about city lights and that gesture mm-hmm. where it kind of leaves a little bit untold this one, even showing you what could potentially happen, but still li- leaving a little bit untold, but letting the actors gestures in the camera placement and movement in this one, uh, tell the rest of the story. Yeah. I, I think it's just like, it's something like that, that like prevents it from like being like, like schmaltzy or or like insincere is that like Eastwood is engaging with this in like such a genuine way where it's like the film is like immersed in like suffering and misery and I think like the fact that you get the full end of the spectrum allows you to just have like just a little bit of beauty because that's all you will really see in real life is like mm-hmm. not like I, I don't know not anything is nearly operatic but just like these tiny little real life grace notes and that's what mm-hmm. makes I don't know Clint the fucking man absolutely uh, one of I mean I think one of his most romantic scenes I've seen from him I mean like I, I love how you yeah like you're talking about you get that cut of what might happen and it's much more you know, dramatic, you get that body double spinning kiss, you know what I mean? All that stuff. And then when they meet up, it's much more simple, but you kind of get both romantic, you know, both sides of the romantic spectrum there with that ending. You get the best of both worlds. You get the sweeping grand romantic gestures and then kind of like some of the more simple and just, uh, you know, very pleasant sides of romance that you get. And uh, yeah, I mean, it really put that, you know, the movie over the top for me. And you know, schmaltzy or not, I you know I'm I'm at the point to where I can't even recognize if so, you know it's just gotta hit me on a gut level. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. And this did. Absolutely. Um, I think that's all we're gonna say on hereafter for now. Check out the second Patreon. We started a second. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon. Check out the main feed. <laughs> yeah, extended clip. Extended clip. Um, I don't know. Half baked joke I had. Nice. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, cliffhanger. big announcement in like middle school that like our homeroom teachers like talked to us about in like a similar way where it was like someone shit on the floor in the bathroom by like the uh the faculty lobby yeah or, or like when you enter the school that like sort of entrance room someone just took a shit on the floor and then um like this kid at like lunch later that day who i was like kind of acquainted with he was like come here like i was like i gotta tell you something and he like couldn't he was like fighting back intense laughter and he was like it was me (laughs) (laughs) i pooped on the floor and i was like okay what like i'm not i'm not proud of you not the not the right audience it didn't it at the time it wasn't funny to me but now it's great (laughs) you grew up and you realize yeah now i wish yeah (laughs)
<laughs> now I wish I was that kid. You know what? I I, I kind of wish I did the turd in a brown paper bag, set it on fire prank. Yeah. It's kind of a it's harsh one. It's never too late. I guess. <laughs> Should we start pulling pranks? Dude, yeah. Turn it into a prank the, channel. <laughs> Find Griffin Newman's address. Dude, the, the juvenile delinquency on display in our double feature with Mike Thorne. Me, yeah, it makes me want to be JD mode. I just got to start doing pranks. We got to go become the impractical jokers of the film world and just yeah. prank you know people in film culture. The flaming bog, the flaming bag of dog shit thing always perplexed me. Like. <laughs> You gotta hang out with some shit for a while, <laughs> and it's also just so dangerous. Like in California, with as dry as a climate as we have, we're always in fire danger. <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for a fire <laughs> doing that. That's how the last fire started. Oh, it was a shit prank. Did I wrong. tell you uh, this? I almost set a field on fire with oh fireworks God. one time. <laughs> like I was like, um, I'm not sure if this. Are you recording? Yes. Okay. Well, I I don't know. Um, how statue really of limitations? No, <laughs> how how legal this is? No, but because I was like, it's fine. After hours, um, I was really was really worried at like for a time, um, <laughs> about this. Like, if if things had went wrong, I could have like burned down like a farm, and and like I was like worried that like it could have killed a person, but like. Um, but it things was didn't go wrong. No, they didn't go wrong. It was high school. Um, there was a friend of mine, and like uh, we were riding in his mini coupe, just cruising as you will. And <laughs> um, there's this road called Space Highway around where I grew up, which is Sounds a very trippy, cool, a very cool name. That has to be where you park and smoke weed, right? Um, not. I don't know why it was called Space Highway. It has some non weed smoking name. <laughs> Uh, but we like, there's a point in space highway where you could pull off. Um, and we had like fireworks or whatever. And keep in mind, this is the middle of the day. So it was like completely <laughs> fucking stupid to want to set off the fireworks <laughs> anyways. But we're like, okay. Um, like we have them, we're just, they're just lying around. We want to get rid of them, like just blow some shit up. And so we like very half-assed, like put the fireworks in the ground and they just sort of spurt up a little bit, go out, whatever, that's fine. And then uh, we're like walking back to his car, like, okay, we did that, that's fun, like, let's get on our way. And there's like a the brush, like right down, because it's just this big open field with just like all like uh, growth and brush. And there's a huge fire that's just happened within like five seconds and it's spreading more and more. And we're like, fuck, what do we do? What do we do? And so he's like, he runs to his car and is grabbing water bottles to throw on it. And I'm just like stamping on it. And like, it, fortunately, we get it all out before anything like burns up. But Damn. yeah. Damn. At a certain point in my mind, I was like, if this, because it was really hard to put out, I was like covered in soot and smelled like a firefighter yeah. um, afterwards. And I was like, oh man, thinking through it at the time, I was like, well, we just sort of have to, if, if this goes the wrong way, this is just a secret between us. We can't like, <laughs> we ditch it and run. That's so fucked. <laughs> I understand. No, you have to think like I understand. I mean, we put it out like it was fine. I didn't have to. (laughs) It's a funny story I have now, and not I. I see on the news that I've accidentally killed someone. You're ready. You were ready to take a blood oath, real quick. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's just like (laughs) the gears are turning in your mind when something's going wrong. You're like, if this goes bad, it's like suicide. You're the only guy who knows I started. (laughs) 
Dude, that's mafia mafioso mindset, dude. I like it. I like it. You were you were on your creative crime. Did shit. you ever have any attempts uh, of fate when you were in your juvenile delinquent phase? Uh, just mostly smoking weed in places that I shouldn't. No, have you been didn't smoking light anything weed. on fire. No, I no no pranks involving poopy. No, no. I mean, I remember. I don't know. I remember like uh, when I was thirteen. I was at like some girl's birthday party and like me and my friend just pissed in the public pool <laughs> thinking that like that would be funny and i don't think anyone was really that about it except for us <laughs> but i i'm glad we, we did it you know pull a little spin the bottle afterwards it wasn't bad it wasn't a bad night pissed in the pool got got some pecs some reluctant pecs <laughs> but uh, you know how could there be a better night <laughs> With, it was like spin the bottle with like the parents inside and we're like in the backyard. Kind of awkward. Kind of awk. Did you get up to any pranks, Eddie? <laughs> Sorry. No, it's all good. Ooh, yeah, there are a couple. Um, let's see. I mean, there was some awful TPing that just was garbage. Uh, not very good job, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I had a couple of we had to pull like we too. had to pull in some professionals to get a good hit, but we never did it, you know. Um, but one time, actually, uh, my friend, we were just like at the ninety nine cent store trying to just get a bunch of junk to throw on this card's y- yard alongside TPing it and just throwing gross stuff on there. And so we found these like really gross cheap condoms at the ninety nine cent store that were like a six pack for a dollar. So we bought them and we like. Filled it with like uh Come. yeah we all jacked <laughs> off into really the condom open. yeah <laughs> <laughs> no we filled it with something either shaving cream cream cheese something like not cream cheese uh shaving cream so or uh, cheese approximating whiz, approximating no because <laughs> this 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 friend we we made many sauce combinations for pranks uh this is just one of them was what we put in the condoms but anyway uh maybe a whole year and a half later my mom found like one of those condoms like in like uh maybe my drawer or something like that I was like 14 you know yeah. she, she she could get through my stuff yeah and she was just like freaking out she thought i was having sex yeah. little did she know yeah. no, i would not have sex no worries <laughs> for a very long time after my 14th birthday uh, yeah i should have planted a condom late high school should have been yeah. oh shit sorry yeah. <laughs> so your parents would think you're getting pussy? Yeah, man. <laughs> so, oh, so my mom thinks I'm cool. You got to flex on her. <laughs> yeah, just, just showing up to the breakfast tra- table and dropping a Magnum condom. I'm not really, you know, I'm not. I haven't really brought a girl home to my parents yet, so I gotta, I gotta let them know I'm at least fucking. Damn. Occasionally. <laughs> I had one other uh, tryst with <laughs> delinquency of note. That's kind of related. Uh, I'll get into the other sauce mixes another time, maybe. Mm-hmm. I'll release the cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> cookbook. But another one was uh, when I had to switch high schools my junior year, and I ended up going to my uh, home school, my, uh, you know, the public high school instead of the charter high school that I started my first three years at. I was telling my friend on Facebook Messenger, and I was like, I really just like don't want to talk about it with people. Just make up anything if someone asks. And, I'll, and yeah. he was just like, okay. oh, you know who it was? Previous guest of the show, Roger Carno from the Clifford and Monkey Bone mm-hmm. episode, uh, bringing it way back to our youth uh, <laughs> when we were teen delinquents. Uh, he immediately, after I sent that message, within a minute, posted on Facebook 
uh, yo, I heard Eddie just got kicked out of Granada for shitting on the dean's desk. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a rumor that went on like when I was getting like DMs from, and I was like not a you know popular kid yeah. in school, but that was like the only time in, in my high school life probably that like I like you know that feel when notifications flooded like, <laughs> just like people were just like dude what's going on did you actually shit on the D-side? your project x moment. did you say yeah. did you play it up did you like i just i just never said no or yes i was, just, uh, yeah, I was always a little good. bad boy yeah. <laughs> when, when someone i actually knew would dm me i'd be like no of course not what yeah. are you fucking are you serious <laughs> like, like, to the girls you're like yeah you oh yeah uh, I, I fucking took a fat dump on you think desk. i was just like alone in the <laughs> dean's office for 20 minutes and had like access to something to wipe up my disgusting <laughs> diarrhea. It's his papers. Yeah, his papers. Or <laughs> yeah, you rip a page out of like, on my asshole. I, well, you you know you take you, that's the that's the risk you take. Um, what do you also to speak about uh, um, wiping techniques? Wiping in a in a in a short amount of time. <laughs> I remember my my uh, I have a friend. Won't name him. Um, he, he he finds himself in a lot of scenarios where he publicly has to take a shit a lot of times. <laughs> And uh, one time I was I was <laughs> dropping off a U-Haul with him, and he really had to go. And I was like, I'll just drive to a grocery store, man. It's no big deal. And he's like, nah. And like, I, he leaves for five minutes. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I don't know. Kind of don't want him to get back into my car after this. And then um, comes back, and I'm like, how'd you how'd you wipe? And he points down to his his shoes, no socks. The socks were gone. <laughs> so 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 if, if you. If you're, if you're uh, ever in a pinch, uh, use your socks. I don't know why I visualized that so vividly. <laughs> just, he was also, yeah, he's just definitely like like shitting in like some suburb. Some, like, definitely was not any concealed places to... <laughs> jackass lifestyle, what can I say? This episode of the Extended Clip After Hours has been brought to you by juvenile delinquency and taking a poopy and potty talk a lot of potty talk let's start the show